Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. The Jewish leadership had fabricated charges against Paul, forcefully declaring that he was worthy of death. The new governor of Judea knew that their charges were of little concern to Rome, but when Paul appealed to Caesar, it left the governor with no alternative but to send him to Rome. In an attempt to find some charges to level against Paul, Festus arranged for him to be brought before Herod Agrippa II, as well as the commanders and important men of Caesarea. However, everyone who heard Paul's defence believed him to be innocent of any wrongdoing, and both the governor and King Agrippa lamented that Paul could have been released if only he had not asked to be judged by Caesar. Though the bewildered leaders believed that Paul had made a terrible mistake in appealing to the emperor, the Lord had told Paul that he must go to Rome to testify concerning Jesus, and his appeal guaranteed that he would not only go there, but that he would even be able to share the gospel with the emperor himself. The governor allowed Paul to be accompanied by Luke and Aristarchus, who would see to his needs on the journey. He was given into the custody of a high-ranking centurion named Julius, along with several other prisoners who were headed to Rome. Luke revealed that they were travelling at a particularly dangerous time of the year when strong winds in the Mediterranean made sea travel impractical. They found an Alexandrian grain ship which they hoped would be fast enough to outrun the rapidly changing weather. However, the winds became increasingly difficult, making travel impossible. When they arrived in a port called Fair Havens, Paul, directed by the Holy Spirit, advised that they should winter where they were. However, the centurion rejected Paul's advice in favour of the pilots and the ship owners' recommendations that they try to sail on to Phoenix, which was a bigger town where they could more conveniently wait out the worst of the weather. Unfortunately, ignoring the man of God's advice to follow the wisdom of men turned out to be a dangerous decision. Luke picks up the story for us in Acts 27 verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. A very unexpected south wind made the plan seem easy, as it would push them straight towards Phoenix, paying more attention to their immediate circumstances than to God's warning from Paul. They happily set off, hugging the coastline of the island of Crete, but it wasn't long before a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster arose and was so powerful that it blew them far off course 
course, taking them further and further away from Crete. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing they would run aground on the sandbars of Certus, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. The storm was so fierce and their course so unpredictable that they feared running aground on the sandbars of Certus just off the coast of North Africa, a very dangerous area where many ships had been wrecked in the past. They began to do everything they could think of to save themselves, their cargo and their ship. They hoisted their small lifeboat aboard to keep it from breaking to pieces against the hull of the ship. They tried to reinforce the ship's structure itself. These grain ships were very large vessels that were very difficult to steer and hard to manage in high seas. They had only one mast with a single great sail, which made it impossible to sail into the wind and which put a tremendous strain upon the ship's timbers in a gale. And so in a, in a maneuver that I can't even imagine, the crew passed ropes under the ship in the hopes of holding the straining boards together. They then lowered the anchor and surrendered themselves to the winds. The next day they realized that they had to somehow lighten the ship, and so they began to throw a portion of their cargo overboard in spite of the financial losses that would bring. On the third day, they began to throw the ship's equipment and furniture overboard also, but still the storm raged. With no sun or stars to navigate by, they had no idea where they were being driven or where they were. Their hopes of being able to survive were diminishing with every hour, if only they'd listened to Paul's warning. But when the situation seemed most desperate and all hope was gone, an amazing thing happened. Look at verse 21. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed." Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. 
Paul took command of the situation and told them that they would have been spared the damage and loss they were experiencing had they followed his advice in the first place. This was far more than an I told you so moment, and there's much we can learn from it for ourselves. There are times when God sends us warnings that we would do well not to ignore. The soldiers and sailors had been in such a hurry to complete their mission that they had recklessly rushed ahead, hoping for the best. And yet, even though they'd ignored his warning, God showed he was mercifully willing to save them. Paul urged them to hold on to their courage and promised that they would not lose their lives even though the ship itself would be destroyed. He revealed that a messenger of God himself had appeared to him the evening before and had reminded Paul that he himself would be safe and that he was to stand trial before Caesar no matter how things looked at the moment. But the messenger also revealed that God had graciously chosen to spare all the men who were traveling with him as well. I'm sure some of the sailors and soldiers questioned Paul's certainty at first. After all, they didn't know this God he seemed to know and believe in. But when he insisted that God would be true to his promise, some began to believe him. Perhaps it was because there was no other option, but I believe that many actually drew strength from his confidence and began to make it their own. In a good news, bad news kind of way, Paul calmly told them that the ship would indeed run aground and be destroyed, but he was certain that they would all be saved. Not one of them would be lost. So what did happen? Luke reports in verse 27, On the fourteenth night we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. By this time, they had come a great distance across the Adriatic Sea, which was the area of the Mediterranean far to the south of Italy. Can you imagine how terrifying the last 14 days must have been as they pitched up and down on the waves, at times even in the dark night, the storm raging around them? How disorienting it would have been to have no sense of direction, no idea where you were. We're not told how these weary, desperate sailors sensed that they were drawing close to land. I mean, did they see an island when the occasional flash of lightning lit up the sky? Or could they hear the waves breaking on distant rocks? 
We don't know. What we do know is that they began to take depth soundings, and finding that the water was getting more and more shallow, they dropped four anchors from the back of the ship in an effort to hold their position as they prayed for daylight. It was at that moment that Paul took the action of a commander. Under the ruse of dropping one of those anchors, some of the sailors secretly planned to sail away in the lifeboat, but Paul blocked their plan. Following the prompting of the Holy Spirit, Paul told the centurion and the other soldiers that everyone had to remain on board if any of them were to be saved. It seems that the soldiers had learned their lesson about paying attention to whatever Paul said because they immediately cut the ropes of the lifeboat so that it fell away from the ship, preventing anyone from leaving the vessel. Despite the fact that all possibility of escape was now gone, a strange calm came upon the men as Paul began to speak. In verse 33, Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, He took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. Practical man that he was, Paul insisted that they should eat. He had no doubt God would do his part, but he also knew that they must do theirs. He knew that the men would need energy for what lay ahead, and so he gathered the ship's company and told them all to eat. Notice how Paul reassured them of God's promise to protect them, and how, even in the midst of crisis, he modeled trust and gratitude to God as he gave thanks to God in front of them all. So they followed his example and their spirits lifted despite their circumstances. And once they had eaten, they lightened the ship further by throwing the remaining cargo into the sea. They were willing to give up all hope of an eventual payday in order to survive the night. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. 
He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. Aiming for the beach, they cut their mooring and unfurled the sail, hoping for the wind to drive them to shore, but we know that before they got there, the ship ran aground. Realizing that each individual would have to try to make it to shore on their own, the Roman soldiers thought to kill the prisoners to prevent any from escaping. One can't blame them, for as we have already seen, Roman law required that the guard would have to suffer whatever penalty an escaped prisoner had been facing. No wonder the soldiers would rather kill their captives than allow them off the ship. Once again, the excellent character of the Roman centurion Julius stands out. Wishing to save Paul's life, he was willing to risk his own, and he prevented his men from carrying out their plan, and in the end, all 276 people managed to reach the shore safely, just as Paul said they would. Though that outcome had seemed so unlikely, God protected each one of them in the end. But where exactly were they? Luke describes the scene in Acts 28 verse 1. He says, Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and, as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess of justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. They'd washed up on the shore of the island of Malta, a name which very aptly means refuge. And to their relief, the islanders treated them with unusual kindness. The exhausted men were wet and cold from the sea, and to make matters worse, it was still raining, and so a fire was quickly lit on the beach. Paul had just survived two weeks in a hurricane and a traumatic shipwreck, but ever the servant He tried to see to the needs of others, taking on the humblest of tasks by gathering wood for the fire. Imagine how his witness must have affected the Roman soldiers and the others who had been shipwrecked with him. And I think we'd do well to realize that, as Christ followers, our reactions and our attitudes to the trials of life are often our greatest witness to our trust in God's faithfulness as we continue to serve others despite what we have had to go through ourselves. I wonder what crossed 
his fellow travellers' minds when he was bitten on the hand by the serpent. We know that the locals thought it was a judgment against Paul from the goddess of justice. But I wonder what Julius thought, knowing that there was really no charge against Paul. If we'd been there, I feel certain many of us might have been wondering, how is that fair? Paul was serving others after all he'd just been through. Why didn't God protect him from the serpent? But God had a purpose even in that. I was challenged by the fact that Paul wasn't intimidated by what happened to him. He didn't run around screaming, but merely shook off the viper into the flames. The locals who were familiar with vipers were expecting him to die from the poison. So when no harm came to him, all the people could imagine was that it was perhaps because Paul was a god. Luke doesn't tell us specifically here that Paul addressed that misconception, but we can expect that he did. He was never the sort of man to take credit and praise for himself, but Paul always used those opportunities to point towards the true and the living God whom he served. The Holy Spirit was about to open more doors for Paul to minister on the island. And Luke reports in verse 7, There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honoured us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. The fact that the chief official's name was Publius indicates that he may well have been the chief Roman official on the island. But both his welcome and his hospitality point to the fact that Paul, though technically a prisoner, was warmly received. We see how the Holy Spirit was guiding the followers of Jesus at this point, because you notice it was Paul and not Luke the doctor who went in to heal Publius's father. We're told that as a result of this miraculous healing, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. But interestingly, the word Luke uses here is the word for receiving medical attention. So some scholars think that this might mean that they not only came to Paul to be healed, but also they may have come to Luke, who used his medical skills as a doctor to help them. And when it was time for Paul and his companions to leave, the people of Malta were so grateful for their help that they provided everything needed for the onward journey. Verse 11. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. 
The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Putoli. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. After three months, Paul and the ship's company managed to get passages for Italy on another corn ship that apparently had wintered in Malta. Luke gives a description of the vessel, saying that the ship's figurehead was of Castor and Pollux, who were two favourite gods of sailors in those days. Because the winds had died down by this time of year, this voyage was far easier than their previous voyage had been. Being driven towards the shores of Italy by a wind that had come up out of the south, they soon reached Putoli, which was the main port that served Rome. Finally, Paul had arrived. I can only imagine the anticipation he must have felt in his heart as they entered the busy harbour, knowing that his journey was almost at an end. Throughout the trip, the Roman centurion Julius had been anxious to get to Rome as quickly as possible, and yet here in Putoli, when they found some other Christian brothers, Julius allowed Paul and his friends to stay with them for seven days before departing. We might wonder why he would allow them to do that. Personally, I think that by this stage, Julius might have been starting to exhibit more than a passing interest in Christianity and was actually interested in meeting more Christ followers. When they did set out for Rome a few days later, Luke relates that something wonderful happened. The brothers there had heard that we were coming and they travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. The Forum of Appius was 43 miles away from Rome, and the Three Taverns was 33 they were both on a road known as the Appian Way, which ran from the coast to the city of Rome itself. Luke reveals that a delegation of Roman Christians came out to meet Paul. And the way that this is written in the Greek helps us to understand that these believers were sent to welcome the apostle, rather like those who would be sent out to greet a king or a conqueror who was coming to the city. We aren't ever told who specifically came to meet Paul and honour him as one of the heroes of the faith, but likely that group would have included some of his friends mentioned at the end of his letter to the Roman church. Perhaps Priscilla and Aquila, who had served with him in Ephesus, were part of the crowd that came out to meet him. Maybe his friend Persis, who he said at the end of the book of Romans was a woman who worked hard for the Lord, was among them. Or perhaps it was Rufus and his mother. 
We can't be sure, but Paul was greatly encouraged by their welcome, whoever they were. And it wasn't just seeing familiar faces that strengthened Paul's spirits. He also realized that the work of God was prospering in Rome and that the church there was thriving. He felt great joy knowing that the kingdom of God was going from strength to strength. And as he thanked God, his spirits lifted. Paul was not a young man anymore and had been through so much in his ministry, especially in the last two years. Courage once more filled his heart as he now faced the next steps of the future that awaited him at Rome. Luke explains that when they got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier to guard him. Though not placed in a common prison, he was likely under house arrest, and it was likely that this man of God was shackled to a Roman soldier 24 hours each day. But as we shall see in our final lesson next time, Paul's service for the Lord was far from over. God still had work for him to do. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for all you've said to our hearts, and I pray that in the storms of life we would not lose our courage, but that we would continue to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, trusting him to fulfill his promises to us. Lord, that we might one day be brought safely to that heavenly home, that heavenly shore. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.